Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our traditional Friday morning uh, with uh, John Schreiber and colleagues. So we're going to change the name, maybe. You know, it's no longer Ask the Experts, Ask John. Maybe there's a new title. So if you want to blog in there, maybe we, can, we can change the title and make it a, like a competition. John, would that be okay with you? So, okay. Very good. Uh, we, you know, again, it's uh, looking better out there. Uh, not just the weather is going to be 70 today, probably 80 next week. And it's, I think, a sign of things to come for Connecticut. Uh, the, the positivity rate yesterday was below 2% for the first time in a long time. Uh, vaccination rates have gone up significantly, dramatically in Connecticut, I think up to 60%. May, maybe John will show some of those numbers. Uh, so we are on a, on a, on a good path now, and, and that feels good. feels really, really good. Not out of the woods yet. I think you'll hear John tell you that. Uh, it, but it is important that we, we feel a sense of optimism that we're moving in the right direction, warmer weather, the summer months. And we've been through a long fight with COVID-19. So uh, hang in there. Uh, we're almost there. Just a couple of announcements. On, uh, on Tuesday, we have uh, Dr. Opotowski, I think I'm pronouncing that correct. The, the Grand Rounds is Exercise Physiology and Congenital Heart Disease. And this is the, the Comites Lecture, where we honor Leon for his many, many years of wonderful contributions. So please join us on Tuesday. And then we'll be back next Friday with John and Nancy Grover, uh, who will talk about his sleep apnea. But today, we have John with his update. And uh, a real-life story with, uh, from a, a wonderful nurse from uh, Hartford Healthcare, Christine Bell, who will tell us about uh, long haul and, and uh, what actually has uh, occurred. And uh, again, she's a mother, patient, and a nurse, which will be a great story for all of us to listen to and share and, and ask the experts and ask the questions. So, John, I'm going to ask you to come up and give your presentation. Thank you, Juan, and good morning. Good morning, Connecticut uh, and New England and uh, wherever else you're tuning in from today. I know there was somebody from Maryland last week. Uh, welcome. We have a lot to talk about. And then I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, Christine's personal story because I think peer, peers tend to hit home with us. Uh, and um, this will be very important as we try to encourage the rest of our workforce to get immunized, to hear a story of someone who got COVID and where she is with that. There's a lot going on. Um, it's a mixed bag. It's, it's a very interesting time for us. There's a lot going on. I'm going to move quickly and, and run through. So the United States is in our fourth resurgence. Um, there's no question. The question really is, are we going to control it this time? And you can see right now it's sort of leveling off and, and it's unclear. And I'll show you some data. I think if we can get the immunizations out and continue this rapid pace, we will control this resurgence, but I, right now it's plus minus, and I'm gonna show you some data why it is plus minus. Now the resurgence is very spotty across the United States. You can see the upper Midwest, particularly Michigan is the hardest hit, uh, Minnesota also, um, and then the Northeast. Uh, whether we like it or not, we are also part of that as is Florida. There's a piece of Texas that's very hard hit right now, but you can see across the country and Puerto Rico, Across the country, this is spotty. And, um, and if we can push out immunizations and contain it, we would be in a very good place. And again, I, I think we're on the right track, but not there yet. Connecticut shows continuation of high community spread, but to Juan's point, we're down below 2% of, of um, positive tests. And here's what you see. I have a little pointer this time, look at that. So technology's improved. You can see we're, we're kind of trending down now. We have a lot of community spread still, but it's not continuing to go up. And I think that's probably the impact of um, immunization. Now, when I did this just four or five days ago, we're a little over 2%. 
test positivity, it's drifted down. Let's hope it stays down. So, you know, we're kind of containing it right now. And you can see we have a, a blip in our hospitalizations um, that did go up with that little surge that we had uh, last month that seems to be leveling out. And uh, we're dodging the increased mortality bullet. And you'll see why, I believe why it's our, really our immunizations. And, and we'll see this in the past when we began to surge up within about four to six weeks, the mortality rate really shot up. You see that January. I'm hopeful that's not going to happen again, which will be one of the major positive outcomes of our vaccine intervention. Now you'll see the Connecticut average new cases per 100,000 is still very high. We'd like it to be 10 or less per 100,000 all over the state. It's more than that. We're gonna to need to watch this closely. So be vigilant, even though our numbers are trending in the right direction, we still have a lot more community spread than we would like. And it's almost every town. Uh, there's some towns in Litchfield that don't have a lot of cases right now and some in the eastern part of the state. But in general, almost every town has more community spread than we would like across the state. And by the way, this is true in Massachusetts as well. It's a very similar map. Good news. The United States has administered 215 million doses. That includes first and second doses. It's quite remarkable. Um, and I will say it's going to be a shining success in this pandemic for us. We've had a number of bumps in our road. This one is a success. And you'll, you'll see as well, 134 million have gotten at least one dose and 87, 88 million are fully vaccinated. So 40% of the total population has gotten at least one dose. And remember, at, at more than 18 of age, that's over 50%. Um, these are great numbers. We are heading in the right direction. Um, even more important, if you're over 65 in the United States, 65% uh, of those are fully vaccinated. It's just about herd immunity for the elderly and um, very good place to be. We have more work to do, but we're going in the right direction. Despite vaccine hesitancy, we're moving in the right direction. Now we are leveling off. We were shooting up to three, four million doses a day. We've leveled off at around three million doses a day. And there's some worry about that in the media, but I, I will say three million doses a day when you're at 70% of the elderly already being immunized is not bad. So in my view, we're continuing to have a very robust immunization program in the United States. And here's graphically shows you the successful campaign for the elderly in this country. You can see if you're uh, age 65 to 74, uh, well up into the 60s and 70% of those people have been immunized. And even the middle age groups now are approaching 60%. These are fantastic numbers. Those people tend to be the highest risk for mortality. And I believe we're gonna blunt the mortality curve because of this. You can see we're not as good with our younger people. And this is a problem in that I think you'll hear some of the long haulers and others who are getting sick uh, it, it's a young person's infection in the United States right now, and, and we have to understand what the long-term implications of that could be and continue to get everyone we can immunize to prevent those long-term outcomes. The RNA vaccines in the United States rule. Who would have thought a year ago, I admit, I sat in front of you and I was a little skeptical about the RNA vaccines in mass use, the storage, the whole nine yards. We made it work. And we've given about 200 million RNA vaccine doses. They appear to be highly efficacious uh, and uh, safe. 
The J and J is only seven or eight million doses, um, and uh, that's probably going to get re-released shortly by the FDA if I read those tea leaves correctly. But these RNA vaccines have been wildly successful. Our job now is going to be to get them all over the world and figure out how we could store them in countries that don't have the technology to do it as well as we've done. So, um, but these RNA vaccines have been remarkably successful. It will be looked on as one of the technological breakthroughs for immunization in future generations, no question about it. The states with the most immunizations per 100,000, upper Midwest, Middle Atlantic, East Coast, and New Mexico. Now, the problem we see, if you, if you go down to the Southeast, you'll see Mississippi and Alabama have, uh, and Georgia, um, very low rates of immunization. This is a serious problem and it will show, we will have an outbreak there that will shoot up because it's an uncontrolled, non-immunized population. About 20, 25% of the people there have been immunized. So, you know, we need to have a United States plan where everyone, can get immunized up to the levels that you're seeing uh, in the best states. And we are not there yet, and it worries me that we could have regional outbreaks based on poor immunization rates. Connecticut, highly successful immunization program. These, I, I uh, uh, did a screenshot of the DPH presented this uh, earlier in the week. 84%, uh, 75 and above, um, covered by vaccine, uh, ditto with 65 and above, and we're not bad, 16, age 16 and above approaching 60%. These are tremendously positive figures. We can't stop, we need to push on so we get the state to a much better place uh, in terms of community spread. I think we can get there. These are very good numbers right now. And you can see one of the issues, however, is our successes are geographic. So this is success at immunizing the elderly by town. And you'll see there's some towns, in, just fantastic. I mean, 80, 90%, 100% in a couple towns um, of the elderly are immunized, 65 and above. We have a few towns, particularly rural Litchfield, a couple of other areas where it's quite a bit lower than that. So we have vulnerable elderly in towns across the state who have not been immunized and we're gonna to need to fix that. So and I know DPH obviously is, looking at each one of these towns where the immunization rate for the elderly is not where it needs to be. So we're gonna to continue to have elderly get sick, but much less, and we're gonna to need to have this 80, 90% immunization rate for elderly all across the state, not quite there yet. Now, in the, the rest of the world, we have a serious problem. The pandemic is roaring ahead. And the problem here is having billions and billions of viral replications all over the world, there will be more variant mutants and they will come back to the United States. And at some point, we're gonna get a variant that is resistant to our vaccines. Right now, we seem to be reasonably good shape with that. This is a graph showing new cases in India, which has a completely uncontrolled epidemic right now um, hundreds of thousands of new cases a day. I mean, they say 300,000 a day. It's probably twice that. Every ICU bed is filled. They've run out of bottled oxygen in the entire country. Uh, this is a disaster. Um, and so this is happening in a variety of countries across the world. And some of the EU is not in such good shape and has very poor vaccination rates right now. So we as a country when we get our immunizations in a better place in the next few weeks, we're gonna to need to crank up our manufacturing and make vaccines for the rest of the world because this is gonna come back to the United States. We are a global community now, and particularly for epidemics, as we've discovered. 
we're going to need to help the rest of the world recover from this pandemic, not just us. And India has been hit very hard. This is daily deaths in India, we think. Um, and they've just shot up. It's thousands are dying of COVID daily. Now, um, in terms of resistance of variants to uh, post-immunization antibodies, these are some new data about the P1 Brazilian variant um, showing reduced antibody neutralization. And you'll see here, um, this are the monoclonals, the Regeneron monoclonals. And this is, this is their, when they're uh, trying to fight P1. So the Regeneron monoclonals are probably not gonna be very good for P1. Now, vaccinated individuals, a little bit better. You can see over here, although there's a decrease, this is Moderna and this is Pfizer, there's still a lot of neutralizing antibody there. And we're optimistic that if there are breakthrough infections as this variant becomes more across the United States, we'll probably have mild infections. But you can see, although there's a decrease to P1, there's a lot of neutralizing antibody that remains for the two RNA vaccines that we are using. There's some data about vaccine breakthrough infections. So there's new data that just came out of Israel. I think this is really important data. So pay attention to the next three slides. It's a little bit confusing. So Israel has a highly immunized population now. They have 60% of the po total population is immunized. They're down to 100 cases a day from thousands. However, they are getting breakthrough infections. And most of the breakthrough infections, they're doing the genetic analysis or variants. And they occur mostly in seven to 14 days after the second dose. So your, your titer's not quite high enough in that window when you're not immune until you're two weeks after your second dose. That's when the breakthroughs are happening. And so um, they're, they're, uh, it, it's uh, very interesting. Now they've pursued these data further. There were two papers that came out in this paper, they looked at breakthrough infections and where what percent of the breakthrough infections? Oh, oh. my pointer is not showing. I was having a good time with a red dot. Thank you. But what you can see here, uh, you have blue circles. Um, these are breakthrough infections. And the majority of the breakthrough infections are variants in Israel and mostly B117. Now, the the, the complication is B117 has taken over the whole country as the dominant variant. So it's breakthroughs are naturally going to be from that variant. But you'll see there's a sliver of B1351, which is the South African variant. And so the breakthrough infections in Israel are predominantly variant. Um, and uh, it's not a lot, but th this is where, what's happening. Now, however, Despite the breakthrough that you're seeing in a small number of individuals who are vaccinated in Israel, usually within two weeks after the second dose, the vaccination strategy has prevented the spread of the variants. So this, is, this just came out um, in cell. And what you see here, it's a very interesting study. They looked at two population groups, one who was heavily immunized in nursing homes, and they looked at all of the positive cases they had in that population on the right, pink. And you'll see the surveillance program showed very few cases and wild type is blue and the variants green. And, and they didn't have a lot of cases of the variants or the wild type. Immunization worked preventing infection with both. In an under immunized group in the green before they hit all the 60%, the um, positive cases are variants. So if we, this, this is really should inform United States policy. 
Immunization is critical to tamp down on the spread of variants. It worked in Israel, even though you had some breakthrough infections. So very important data showing that immunization will prevent the spread of variants if you get to a certain herd immunity level. In this case, it was 50%. Now, ivermectin, that's been in, in, on the press, it's on Facebook, it's everywhere, it doesn't work. Uh, I know that you're shocked by that, but there was a randomized clinical trial, it's still small numbers, uh, looking at mild COVID-19, they got five days of ivermectin and a placebo in the other group, and it didn't change anything. So ivermectin probably wouldn't use it. This just came out in JAMA last week. Um, great, important data for us new preliminary findings of mRNA vaccines given to pregnant women. It's a small number of people, but a very important data just came out this week in the New England Journal. You'll see published incidents are complications of pregnancy that's in the literature, and V-safe are people who are immunized with the RNA vaccines and then self-report. There's a self-reporting mechanism of complications. So you'll see that spontaneous abortion was the same in published incidents and those who got vaccine, 10% to 20% in published incidents, 12% post-vaccine. Stillbirths, 0.1%, which is less than published incidents. Neonatal outcome, uh, very much right on target with preterm births around 10% in the United States, 9% in vaccine recipients gestational small size for gestational age, the same as published congenital anomalies less than what was published in neonatal death zero out of 724 reports. Small numbers, but very promising showing that any complications with pregnancy are the same as what would happen in unimmunized people. Early data, preliminary, but I think it will allow us to uh, be more specific when we talk to women who are, who are trying to figure out whether they need to get immunized when they're pregnant or not. These are data that are very positive. Thrombosis. Now this is a controversial non-peer-reviewed study that the media has already picked up. This is one of the problems with preprints, but it's very interesting. In this paper, they looked at a retrospective cohort of cerebral venous thrombosis. Remember, that's what was happening with J&J &J and AstraZeneca cerebral venous thrombosis and antiplatelet antibodies causing thrombocytopenia and hypercoagulability. They looked at thousands of people who had COVID-19 and then looked at thousands of people who got the vaccine. And in their conclusion, retrospective, thrombosis was 10 times more likely to happen if you were infected than if you got immunized. And this is very, very important because it shows that the natural infection is bad for you. We already know that. There's a high level of thrombosis, and immunization will reduce that risk, even though there may be a very, very small number of thromboses post-immunization. So very important data. And you can see in this graph, and by the way, Pfizer is contesting these data. In this graph, you can see cerebral venous thrombosis um, in, in naturally infected COVID-19 patients is actually quite high. Thrombosis is a serious, serious potential side effect of getting infected with COVID-19. The mRNA vaccine, which was actually Pfizer, has a very low level of thrombosis. However, it is higher than you would see for influenza. And uh, uh, the uh, Zen AstraZeneca vaccine is higher than the mRNA vaccines in terms of the number of thromboses that they saw retrospectively. 
Now, Pfizer claims that the retrospective data are not correct and that actually the mRNA COVID vaccine recipient thrombosis rate is lower than this. Um, portal vein thrombosis, interestingly, is, is high with influenza, which I didn't realize. And there have been a few reports of the mRNA vaccine afterwards. But COVID-19, lots of portal vein thrombosis, which I didn't realize. So the, the, the conclusion of all this is natural infection has a high rate of thrombosis. Immunization has a, a very, very small rate that's 10 times less than if you got natural infection. Okay, so I think these are important data. Uh, it's retrospective. I'm sure there'll be more coming out in the future to figure all this out. Missy, really, really uh, incredible technology being applied to figure out what the heck is, is this inflammatory disorder post-COVID for children. This is a really important study that showed Missy was uniquely marked by activation of a certain kind of CD8 positive T cell that surveys endovascular cells. So if you look at the boxes where it says Missy, this is flow cytometry showing thousands and thousands of these CD8 positive cells that you don't see um, in acute COVID and you don't see in normal children. This is post-COVID weeks. So somehow COVID is activating these vascularly active CD8 positive T cells. And that's probably why you're getting endovascular inflammation and getting heart inflammation. So fantastic data. I, I think we're gonna figure this out. IVIG, by the way, saturates a lot of receptors and downregulates uh, these cells. And it's probably why it works. So um, keep, keep watch. I do think we're gonna understand Missy and probably secondarily, maybe Kawasaki a little bit better than we did before the pandemic. I'm moving away from movie metaphors today, and um, I'm gonna move to books. This one's called A Bumpy Road to Success, okay? We will be successful. I don't think it's gonna be linear. I think we're gonna, it's gonna be a little bumpy. We've gotta help the rest of the world get pandemic under control. We've gotta get our under immunized states immunized. We have a lot of work to do here. Vaccine hesitancy, we need to, we need to really get people to understand the facts. I know we'll be successful at the end, but I don't think it's going to be linear. I think it's going to be a little bumpy. Don't be discouraged. Uh, we are moving in the right direction, as Dr. Salazar said earlier when we started. So in summary, year two of this pandemic, the United States vaccination is moving, effort is moving ahead briskly. It's a success. It's leveling off, but at millions a day. So we're, we're getting there. Connecticut has excellent immunization levels, and we so far have avoided increased deaths with our community spread. However, we're, we're teetering a little bit. Some of the hospitalizations are up. We have a lot of community spread still. Be vigilant, be vigilant. The United States resurgence is isolated to certain regions, but because we have under immunization in some states, I am concerned we're gonna have outbreaks in those states as well. So I don't think we're done with this. The variants are prevalent and they may cause breakthrough infections, but it looks like the current vaccines will prevent the spread of the variants. So vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. The worldwide pandemic is roaring ahead in multiple countries and there is a shortage of vaccine internationally. We are gonna need to help. When we get our epidemic under control in this country, we have excess vaccine, we are gonna need to help. Otherwise it will come right back into this country. There's waning political will to mandate public health measures, which to me should it really incentivize us to get immunizations out there more and more as much as we can. I use every opportunity to talk to somebody. Are you immunized? What can I do to help you get there? 
and uh, and um, I am optimistic. It's a bumpy road, but there will be success at the end. Now, I'm very interested to hear what Christine has to say next, and then we'll have questions uh, going on. So, Christine, I look forward to the to your talk now. Thank you, John. I uh, greatly appreciate the fantastic summary of uh, what's uh, the update on COVID-19. Just you know, thinking back a, a year ago, little did we know what, what kind of ride we were going to go into. And um, so glad that we're here in the hopefully the what I'm going to call the the tail end, although we're not out of the woods, as you properly say. So now we're going to hear a, a real life story uh, what, of how this virus can impact people directly our own healthcare team members and our families. Uh, so Christine, thank you for joining us and uh, go ahead and start your presentation. Thank you so much, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Schreiber. Um, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. I'd like to personally thank Dr. Spiegelman for reaching out and giving me this opportunity to share my story with you. He has been an exceptional pediatrician to all four of our children not only has he been a wonderful doctor to our kids, but he and his amazing team has have always been so supportive of our family. Speaking at a formal lecture has definitely taken me out of my comfort zone, but if my story can impact just one other person, if it can bring awareness and hope to anyone listening, I can courageously stand before you and share my experience as a mother, a nurse, a daughter, and as a wife, who just like so many people, dealt with COVID on a very deeply personal level. I'm here today to share with you my experience with the beast of COVID and the impact it had on my life, my families, and my coworkers. There are so many who are unable to share their story. I consider myself one of the lucky ones who is here today to tell the story, hug my loved ones, and again, join my fellow nurses and healthcare workers as we continue to battle the beast. I speak from the heart, not just as a nurse, but as a mom, a daughter, and as a wife. Next slide, please. I wanted to take a moment to briefly introduce myself and my family. Here is a picture from Christmas, it's 2019. My husband, Derek, my daughters, Cameron and Avery, my stepsons, Landon and Colby. My husband, Derek is a teacher and I have been a nurse in the cardiology department at Hartford Hospital for almost 13 years. I look at this picture and think to myself, we had no idea what was to come. We captured a moment in time, Christmas Eve with family, hugs, kisses, no masks, no social distancing. I would love to go back to this moment and truly appreciate all those things and so much more because in the coming months, those everyday things and moments would be so quickly taken from us. Just prior to COVID starting, our year began with my husband being very sick and in the hospital. He was found to have multiple blood clots throughout his body, as well as a coincidental finding of a PFO with subsequent surgery in February to close it. We were just settling back into our normal crazy routine when COVID kept creeping closer to home. The kids continued their busy sports and school routines. My husband returned to work and I continued my night shifts as a nurse. And then like so many, our day-to-day -day routines came to an abrupt stop. Next slide, please. It feels like yesterday, those late weeks in February and first week in March of 2020. COVID had felt so far away and just like that, it was here. I remember telling my parents, I'm so sorry, but I can't risk exposing you. I remember the last time being at their house before officially being physically separated. My parents, my girls, Ya and Yaya, who we see and talk to every day, weekly sleepovers at their house with the girls. I'm sorry, girls, but we have to use FaceTime right now to talk to them and give big air hugs through the phone. 
trying to explain this to a five and six year old. I'm so sorry you can't see Yanyaya, our family or friends because of COVID. Answering the why mom and the when is COVID going to be over? And honestly answering them, I don't know, sweetheart, hopefully soon. I remember the mental and emotional stress of every day and every night getting worse at the hospital. I remember the unknowns, the what ifs. I remember hearing about the first case, then the cases just exponentially increasing. Trying to support my coworkers, crying with them, holding patients' hands when they had no other hand to hold. Somehow trying to come home and act normal while internally fighting every emotion, physically being exhausted, but still trying to be mom during very scary and unknown times. I remember being the one to do the errands and shopping. These grocery store pictures taken the same day when the world shifted to isolation and quarantine. The last day before our house became home to four kids trying to do remote learning, my husband trying to teach, and me trying to catch a catnap after night shift to assist in the girls' school. Every one of these mornings coming home, I kept thinking to myself, please keep my family safe and healthy. Next slide, please. These next pictures on this slide are during the week, my whole world would be rocked. A private social media post of friends capturing our now all too familiar masked face, pleading people to stay home. The next picture brings a lot of emotion. It was five days before I tested positive for COVID-19, snuggling my five-year-old daughter, sleeping next to her later that night, not knowing what was in store in the near future. Next slide, please. I worked that night, that Wednesday night, I remember feeling exhausted, but who wasn't tired? Any essential employee, any healthcare worker, mom, dad, or child, mentally, physically drained from the pandemic, who wasn't feeling absolutely exhausted? I had the flu back in January, pneumonia in October of 2019, but this was different. I felt a tickle in my throat like my sports-induced asthma was creeping up on me. In my lifetime, my asthma has only flared up with long runs or playing soccer. I kept a spare more than likely expired inhaler in my closet. I called one of my managers and she suggested I call the command center, just in case. I said I was tired and I'd sleep it off. I called and I made an appointment to get tested. I was scheduled for that Friday, April 17th at 9 a.m. in the drive-through COVID test site at Hartford Hospital. I was officially quarantined for my family. My husband and daughter made signs for my bathroom and my bedroom. By Friday morning after my test, my cough was relentless. I couldn't breathe. My fever started and I felt like I was hit by a Mack truck. By Friday evening, I sat tripoding in my bedroom, constantly puffing on my albuterol inhaler until I felt like I couldn't do it anymore. I called my husband on the phone who was sitting just outside the door eating dinner with the kids and said, you have to take me to the hospital. I can't breathe. He masked up, drove me to Hartford and dropped me off outside the emergency room doors. I have never felt so alone and scared in my life. Next slide, please. I was admitted that night, desetting with minimal exertion, tachycardic up to the 150s, febrile, coughing. I was admitted to one of the floors that I cover overnight within cardiology. The floor is staffed by my friends and one of my managers. One of those friends was the nurse who at three o'clock in the morning came to my door with the provider and said, I'm so sorry, but you're positive for COVID. My world spun in so many directions at those deafening words. The next few days were a roller coaster. I was seen by infectious disease and treated with hydroxychloroquine and Zithromax. I was on Q2 hour albuterol inhalers, high dose IV steroids, 
multiple other supportive medications, nasal cannula intermittently. I proned every day and every night. Again, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. My friends were the ones who were taking care of me. They were always heroes in my eyes, but now they truly were my heroes. Every time the door shut behind them, the sense of loneliness, fear, and sadness was overwhelming. Friends printed pictures, sent prayer shawls, care packages, and cards. My parents would drive to the main entrance just to get out of their car, look up, and wave. My kids, husband, family, and friends would text and FaceTime during my good moments and my bad. Uh, next post, uh, next slide, please. I shared this Facebook post publicly, which was shared hundreds and hundreds of times. It truly captured everything I felt in that moment. Reading it again, it brings so many emotions to the forefront. Finally, after almost a week in the hospital, I was finally strong enough to go home on Thursday, April 23rd, one year ago today. When I was given dates to participate in this series, it was meant to be that I could share my story on my one-year anniversary of being discharged from the hospital. Next slide, please. The next days, weeks, and months were one of the roughest times in my life. I was so happy to be home, but the emotional pain of being physically home and still not being able to hold my kids and family was unbearable. Seeing their faces at my door just to get a peek trying to have them understand why they still couldn't hug mommy after being away for a week at the hospital to make her better, trying to help facilitate remote learning while physically being apart, the stress on our marriage, the heartache for my stepsons and their mom who had to be quarantined from her for several weeks. Emotionally and mentally, we somehow found ways to strengthen and brighten our days, little by little. Family and friend parades just to say I love you and feel better being able to finally sit outside with the sun on my face, watching the kids play outside, having a birthday parade for my daughter, Cameron, with a fire truck to boot. It all brings a smile to my face, just thinking of those moments. But the biggest blessing throughout all of this was unbelievably my family did not get COVID. Next slide, please. Unfortunately, my post COVID time has been filled with many physical setbacks. I continue, I continue to have difficulty breathing, persistent coughing, migraines, fatigue, and chest discomfort for the remainder of the year. I had multiple virtual appointments with my very supportive PCP. I had follow-ups with cardiology and pulmonary, numerous medication changes, several rounds of oral steroids, testing, which included an echo stress test, cardiac event monitor, chest x-rays, COVID swabs, and pulmonary function testing. I started seeing a wonderful therapist and social worker who has helped tremendously in dealing with the emotional impact of COVID and also life, life stressors from the day-to-day -day things to the overpowering life adjustments this year has brought. My PCP got me involved with the COVID Recovery Center in December. Since then, I have had consults with neurology and cardiology. My neurologist changed my medications to help combat my persistent migraines and insomnia. Today, I can say my insomnia has improved, but still dealing with the migraines, but the frequency, however, has decreased. My breathing has improved over the last couple months. I am still not able to fully participate in all exercises and feel that twinge of asthma flare up with any exertional activity. I don't leave home without my inhaler or my migraine medication, but all in all, I'm getting stronger every day and feel so fortunate to be here. Next slide, please. 
These next couple of slides briefly capture our lives the last past few months. I think most would find these pictures very familiar to their own experiences. Birthday parades, virtual learning and lots of coffee, and even a new puppy to make our trio complete. A PPE picture captured during our second round of COVID at work. Next slide. A second round which brought all the hopeless and scary feelings back, except this time we had met the beast before. We knew the sorrow and pain. We had experienced the fatigue and breakdowns. I can honestly tell you, I had a gut-wrenching stomachache most nights driving into work. But the nights passed, the numbers climbed, and then started trending back down. And then the day came when the vaccines rolled out. It was bittersweet. Both doses knocked me on my backside for a good week each time, but knowing there was a light starting to glow at the end of a very long, dark tunnel brought a wave of emotion. Next slide, please. I was also very grateful to recently have been asked to share my story in the Hartford Current. I was humbled to serve as a voice for so many of those who will never have a chance to share their story. Just like this experience, every time I revisit the events of this past year, I am so thankful every day. Next slide, please. As more friends and family started to receive their vaccine, as my girls stepped out onto the baseball field yet again, as we made our trip to our favorite place, Mystic Aquarium with my parents, took a walk on the trail with my girls to find a beautiful, peaceful pond, an overwhelming feeling of gratitude, strength, and optimism fills my heart and soul. I am so thankful for my family, friends, and community, and for everyone taking the time to listen to my story. Here's to every day we get closer to hugging all of our loved ones, holding hands, school events, concerts, and so much more. But until then, continue to mask up, stay safe, and enjoy every little moment life brings to you and your family. Thank you. Christine, that was uh, powerful, amazing, brought tears to my eyes, really mean that. Um, thank you for sharing your story with, with all of us. Uh, it brings us to the journey we have been through in a very direct way. Um, I know we have team members um, on this meeting today that have actually have lost family members. Um, Nilda, hang in there. We love you. Um, uh, just really hard. So, John, take it away. Thank you, um, Christine. Um, that was a poignant story. I, I'm glad that this is recorded because the um, opportunity for others to hear it is going to be very important. And um, thank you for sharing that. I also would say I, I look at a young, healthy family and COVID uh, can make young, healthy people really sick and have long-term consequences. Please get immunized. Uh, if you've been hesitant, this story should guide you on the journey to get immunized so that our families don't go through this. And also the more of us who get immunized, the more we can move to a place, as Christine mentioned, where we can hug people again and, and get back to a normal life. So please take this story to heart and, and thank you for sharing. And as Juan said, uh, just another comment before we get to questions. Um, I looked yesterday, I don't show it anymore, but we have 565,000 deaths from COVID. And um, as Dr. Salazar mentioned, some in our very own, uh, in our very own work family have lost loved ones very recently. And um, each one of these people 
had a family and loved ones, just as you heard here, uh, Christine's outcome was good and I'm hopeful and optimistic she continues to get better, but some have lost people. And um, uh, as you see these huge numbers, you become numb to it and we need not to be numb to that and encourage all of our community uh, to make the wise decisions that will prevent more and more people from dying from this. So again, thank you. Juan, questions? On the, uh, uh, here, the, these are comments uh, for, for Christine. And so for Nilda Fernandez, thank you for sharing. Donna Borokov, thank you so much for sharing your story. From Alexis Vith, thank you for sharing. Um, and from, uh, you know, again, let me just, I just want to acknowledge this. From Mary Kate, thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, from uh, Dr. Sashi, thank you. From Claudia Alford, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Christine, your courage is amazing. Thank you for sharing. And Apollo Machado, Eileen Lawrence, thank you for sharing your story. Jennifer Twatchman, who is one of our researchers here, thank you so much for sharing your story. It is so important that people understand the wide variety of possible impacts of COVID. Um, all right, we have some, uh, oh, by the way, Ed Selenwright suggests that maybe we call this practical grand round. So we, that's at least we have one. So thank you, Ed, um, for that. We will take that into consideration. Um, we have, maybe the, maybe it's the John and Juan show, but maybe not. Um, Murray uh, Luxemburg, uh, any oral therapy options available for early disease that look promising? So far, all have been failures, John. Although I know there is an oral antiviral that's being investigated by Merck, actually. So I'm optimistic, but I've not seen any data showing efficacy yet. So I, I think that's down the road. And as you're aware, we're using combined monoclonals now early in infection uh, when people don't need oxygen yet. And there seems to be some efficacy with that. But you're right, for orals, not yet, but I'm optimistic. As I said, there's one being investigated by Merck and probably others by other companies. Uh, regarding thrombocytopenia, John, with the vaccines, what workup should these patients receive? Uh, scans for thrombosis, repeat levels, delay second dose? Well, I think if you do end up having a documented thrombosis, then there is an extensive workup that needs to be done. That's fairly urgent. And there's actually a, um, I believe the CDC has posted potential symptoms post-vaccination that make you worry about thrombosis. And that does require a CBC and platelet count and a variety of other clouding factors and imaging and interventions, but not heparin. Uh, so there are other anticoagulants that would be used. So that requires specialty care rather quickly. So that's where I would send those patients. Yeah, the key element is uh, for at least the Johnson & Johnson induce uh, thrombocytopenia with uh, with uh, antiplatelet antibodies is that you cannot use heparin. And that's that's the key. So I think one of the things we may do is uh, in a future uh, session is bring one of our uh, hematologists to talk about the management. In fact, that's uh, that's what we should do. We have a vacancy on mid-May. We will do that one. Good suggestion. Good. Uh, Claire Bailey, well, that was the thrombocytopenia. opinion. Uh, Karen Rubin, uh, can you comment on the people's vaccine? Dr. Hotez uh, is working on to help vaccinated people in, under, in, in developing countries. And what type of vaccine is it? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I, you may know what Peter's working on. I know that Novavax um, is a recombinant spike protein that's grown in insect cells. You can grow gallons of the stuff. It's stored literally on the shelf or at a very reasonable temperature. And so I think there will be uh, inexpensive, easy to store vaccines with good efficacy that we can spread worldwide, but not today. So, you know, in the meantime, we're gonna to need to do both. But yes, I do believe there'll be more stable vaccines that actually contain spike antigen. Um, that's the one I'm aware of. And I believe Peter was working on a modification of that. 
Yeah, Peters is a, is a protein-based vaccine grown in yeast. I think that was the, and it's a very it's a very cheap uh, uh, cheap production, which will allow it to be used in the developing world. So you know, uh, kudos to Peter. We we had him last year. He gave a presentation. Maybe we'll invite him again if he's able to wake up a little earlier from Houston. If and if he's not on CNN or yeah, a, time and, zone, it's a challenge yeah, for absolutely. him. Absolutely. Um, so question about the the vaccine and and uh, improving long haul symptoms. There are some interesting data showing people, long haulers, weeks later, who are immunized have a diminishment of symptoms. Um, I have to say I've not seen a paper that uh, examines this with great data, but though that it, there are some reports of that. Um, if it's true, it's fantastic news and uh, would be very helpful to those individuals like Christine who are suffering from this. But I, again, I haven't seen data where you have long haulers randomized to get immunized and not get immunized. I'm not even sure you could do that anymore because we just need to immunize everyone. So um, uh, unclear, but yes, there have been some reports of that. Uh, Christine, a question for you. Um, based on your experience, uh, what advice would you give someone who has vaccine hesitancy? Um, I would most likely um, speak from the heart and say, obviously, it's not even just for your own sake, but um, your family, your friends. Um, and I mean, the good definitely outweighs everything at this point. And get thank back you. to somewhat of a normal. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for sharing that. Um, uh, a question about uh, fluvoxamine, uh, John, anything, uh, this fluvoxamine, I, it, I'm not sure that that's my, in perhaps for coagulation, I think it may be. But anyways, we'll find out. We'll get yeah, back I'll, to I'll look into that. Again, that's something that doesn't pop into my head. So um, we'll, it will become written to me, and we'll do some investigation to get back to you. Thank you for the okay. question. From Larry Serzer, as you know, their childhood respiratory viral diseases are way down, and their associated complications. Can you comment on the future of childhood infections, and will the AAP recommend universal mask wearing in schools and other congregant settings? I, I can't predict what... Others will recommend, I wouldn't get into that, but I, I do think it's a fascinating question. So because of the pandemic and our public health measures, and frankly, all the families changing their behavior, we've sort of conquered the respiratory viruses and, and for one year. So there's a lesson to be learned there. And, and you know, in some of the densely populated countries in, in Asia where it, during respiratory viruses and everyone wears masks because they don't it's crowded. They don't have the luxury uh, that we do here of, of open spaces. And so I think that maybe we should modify our behavior during respiratory virus season. And um, just think if we could knock down influenza uh, the way we did this year. So I, I don't think I'd want to lock anything down future. I, we'd like to have, you know, move to normalcy, but maybe hand washing, not shaking hands during flu season and wearing a mask for six weeks during the winter is a reasonable thing to do. We shall see. And I don't know what the recommendations will be. And, I, and, and you can already see the anti-maskers going nuts on that. And so it's complicated in the United States, but I think there's a lesson here. We have completely conquered respiratory virus season in the United States this year. And maybe we should take some of those lessons in a modified way moving forward. I don't know what the AAP is gonna recommend. I don't know what the CDC is gonna recommend, but those are my thoughts. Right, thank you. Um, Christine, a, a practical question for you. If, if others may, that may be on the call or have patients have uh, individuals with uh, 
what we call long haul syndrome. The, uh, do you have? Can you share uh, what available resources or uh, you may be able to to find here locally for individuals in the Hartford, uh, maybe even beyond in Connecticut? Sure. Um, I mean, granted, I had a wonderful PCP who was treating me all along, but um, getting involved in the COVID Recovery Center has been wonderful. Um, they basically set you up with someone who does a thorough intake. Um, and at that point, you kind of discuss whatever long haul symptoms that you have been experiencing. And then at that point, they pretty much um, set you up with an initial visit. And then they um, can set you up with what specialty groups that are needed at that time, whether it's pulmonary, cardiology, um, you know, uh, neurology, um, and also behavioral health as you know, um, mental health as well. Um, I, the therapist who I see has been wonderful in dealing with the emotional um, impact of everything. And if um, Christine, uh, if you can send that to us, maybe we'll put that on the website for adults who have long haul symptoms that intake. So we really appreciate the advice on that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, another question. Uh, what what and for either one of you what do you what do you say to convince a person to get the vaccine who has had covid a mild course and it believes covid isn't as bad as people think and the vaccine isn't necessary so john you first and then christine no um the, stay with the facts uh it's clear that people who've had covid the immunity wanes over three or four months and they can get reinfected we have a lot of variants now coming in some of which seem to spread more rapidly some might even be more virulent we're not sure the vaccines we know prevent that. So there's nothing to say you won't get reinfected. There's nothing to say you won't be reinfected with a variant that could make you sicker. Uh, and in addition, we don't understand the whole immune response. And we don't understand if people who are infected multiple times with COVID are more likely to get long haul syndrome or not. So from my view, the risk of that is very high and I would get immunized. Now there are data to show that one dose after you've had COVID of the RNA vaccines is quite good. We may not need to be doing two doses in those people as we move forward, more and more data comes out. But I, I would strongly advise people been infected uh, to get immunized so they don't get reinfected because we have no idea what that secondary immune response will do. And, and, um, and Christine, again, has been very poignant to show us what an outcome of long haul disease can be. And same question for you. Somebody had a, what they call mild COVID, um, but perhaps there's some hesitancy in saying we don't really need this. What would you say to them? I would agree with this, especially in that last part that Dr. Schreiber um, was talking about just in regard to, you don't know if you can, if, if the next round is going to be even worse um, if you were to be reinfected with COVID. And that's why, you know, as soon as I had the chance to get vaccinated, I was one of the first ones ready to, to sign up to get it. So yeah, that's great. And um, Christine, for you and um, I, we can you share with us? Are, are you fully recovered? If um, or if things are still going on, if you you know if you're able to share, that would be great. Sure, um, I am definitely the strongest that I have been <laughs> in a full year. Um, I do still battle migraines, um, the fatigue, and also some shortness of breath um, here and there. But all in all. Um, I am feeling the best that I have felt in a year. <laughs> That's great. Congratulations to you. Your, your fortitude is just simply, simply amazing. Um, we don't have any more questions here. Uh, so John, maybe just one, if you can comment on, 
on Johnson and Johnson, and is, is it going to come back? Um, if it comes back, what would you say to somebody who's hesitant in getting it? If that's the only option they have. So um, it looks like the FDA is reviewing that. I, I actually am optimistic they'll uh, release the J and J vaccine back. Um, the data show seven, eight million doses given, and six women who apparently developed thrombosis temporarily associated with the vaccine. We don't know if it was caused. But you know it's possible. We don't know. So I would I would tell people that um, as I showed you in the data, getting native COVID infection, and as you've heard from Christine, is bad. And the likelihood of thrombosis from COVID is quite high. You saw the numbers. And there's portal vein, venous thrombosis. There's cerebral thrombosis, multivascular thrombosis. It's very common in COVID. It's why those people who have severe disease are anticoagulated rather early. So if you get the disease, thrombosis is likely. If you get immunized, it's one in a million, very unlikely. And I'd be honest with people and say that. The RNA vaccines, I don't know if the data are out yet. You saw the data I showed you that's preprint, not peer reviewed, it's being contested. There may be a small number of thromboses that are a little bit different than what we see with J&J associated with the RNA vaccine, I'm not sure. All you can tell people, you know, nothing's risk-free. If you take penicillin, one in a million are going to have anaphylaxis and not do well. Maybe maybe one in two million. I don't know the number. So any medication, anything we do in life is not risk-free. But I can tell you that getting COVID is highly risky. So that's how I approach it. Um, native infection, bad. And um, we, it's unpredictable. A young, healthy person can get very sick for months and months and or, or get, end up in the ICU and pass away. Um, by the way, I just saw in Michigan... Uh, where there's this huge outbreak now. They have the most number of children ever hospitalized in the state for COVID right now. There's a huge outbreak. It's, it's, it's hitting young people. And a lot of the kids are being hospitalized now. That's new. So we don't know what this virus is going to do. And so from my perspective, our, fa our entire family now has been immunized. Our, our, our pregnant daughter-in-law, our son, as soon as it's ready for a, th a three-year-old grandchild, um, they've, everyone's agreed he'll be immunized. So I think the risk of native disease is high. This is not a human virus. It is still adapting to humans and doing really strange, unpredictable things. And every infectious disease doctor I know will say, what's the one thing about COVID that you find different than the other infections you've dealt with in your career? And I'll say unpredictability. We don't understand why a perfectly healthy, healthy person will be taken out. And the elderly, you sort of, you sort of can grasp, but we don't understand that the incredible unpredictability of this virus. That's how I would answer from the heart. And then it's up to you. You do the risk benefit in your head. And, and in my view, it almost always pushes you to get immunized. Now, there are a few people who have allergic reactions to PEG or have other reasons who, who may not respond well to immunization. And then I think we, we, we're going to have licensed monoclonals at some point to prophylax immunocompromised. Not quite yet. I think the FDA is reviewing that. So that's what I would answer. Um, I think it's important all of us in the healthcare community answer that in a way that's non-judgmental, but pushes out the facts and gives our from the heart response about it, much like you heard from Christine. I can't tell you how valuable, uh, Christine, to have a personal story from a peer on this, uh, ask the experts. It's, it's gonna help us enormously to encourage immunization. Thank you again. Well, a couple of final questions, uh, these are related. Um, length of immunity from uh, actual disease, is it more than 90 days? Uh, is it 180 days, John, what do we know? You know Breakthroughs of people who've been infected seem to be after 90 days, um, and the titers fall off. And it looks like so far the titers fall off more rapidly from natural infection than from immunization. 
something to think about. So, but my bet is people are going to, it's going to be like influenza. I think people will be protected for about six, seven, eight months, probably from natural infection, somewhat. The vaccine data look quite good at six and eight months right now. The, the, the neutralizing antibody titers are still pretty high. I'm anticipating that we'll have an annual booster. Um, my bet would be come this fall or winter, there'll be a booster coming out that covers most of the variants, probably a single shot, and that we'll have a new wave of immunizations that need to roll out across the country, much like influenza. And a related question, uh, please, you know, just maybe if you can state if somebody had COVID, got a, uh, they need one dose or two doses of, of an mRNA vaccine? The recommendation will be the standard two doses. But I am anticipating uh, as things move forward that that might move to a one-dose regimen if you've been documented infection by PCR. That's not the policy currently. I was giving you my scientific hypothesis. The last two questions are related. Um, it, it's, can you speak on reinfection rate? Well, you know, we don't know the reinfection rate. We don't track it. But as I showed you, uh, in a country where there's 60% immunization now in the Middle East, there's a very small number of people who are getting breakthrough infections. We don't know how many of those had original infections. It's a small number of people who are infected who end up getting reinfected. It's not a large number. And it's a very small number of people who are immunized who are getting breakthrough infections. It's not zero, though. And, and, and the United States, uh, we are seeing that. But it's a very small number. I couldn't give you a percent. And then the last question from Richard Ranson, should, should I get COVID tested for any symptoms possibly related to COVID after being fully vaccinated? Well, I think, you know, if you're vaccinated uh, and you develop shortness of breath and cough and fever and classic COVID symptoms, absolutely, you should be tested. We know there's a small number of breakthrough. And we also know that we have variants that are increasing in number in the United States. So if you have symptoms of COVID, get tested, vaccinated or not. However, if you're vaccinated, you're highly unlikely to get significant illness from COVID. The data on that are very good. These are incredibly efficacious vaccines that we have right now. Again, thanks everyone uh, for joining me today. Um, although I've I, I, uh, been thrilled to be able to be part of this community, I will tell you that this um, series has also given me purpose during this pandemic. And I am grateful to all of you in the community who communicate with me and are on this journey. Let's hope that my talks to you don't continue much longer. Let's hope over the coming months, we can dial these down a bit. Um, but right now we will be here at Connecticut Children's for you every week, almost every week, trying to give you the latest data that we can. Thanks again for your time today. John, thank you very much. And Christine, thank you very much for sharing your story. It's really fascinating and, and powerful. Uh, we'll invite you in a few months to tell us how you're doing, if you don't mind. Uh, and, and again, thank you to Ken for, for always uh, bringing fantastic uh, speakers. Uh, everyone, be well, take care, enjoy the, the weekend, tomorrow's weather. Be optimistic, we'll make it through. Bye-bye.